are here. In the 11FS office in WeWork Oldgate, London, for episode 61 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto maybe meets institutions. Today we bring you the ETF rejection in review, IBM and Maersk get real, and eToro sponsor a Premier League football soccer, sorry, not sorry, team. Um, we're trying to do that one for the Americans. Uh, all this and more on today's show. In fact, that football thing was entirely for Colin G. Platt. Um, so Colin G. Platt, shout out to you near your field. Uh, we miss you and you'll be back soon, I'm sure. All right. Um, I'm not alone today, though. Uh, probably the upgrade to Colin G. Platt, the one and only um, Seraphine and my co-host. How are you? I'm very well, Simon. Thank you. Uh, thanks for upgrading this show, as always. Anytime. Uh, I'm glad you can be. But we're not alone. Um, I'm joined by uh, Ryan Radloff uh, from Conscious. Ryan, how are you? Great. I'm excited to be here. And thanks for being on the show. And Aman Coley from Microsoft. How are you? Awesome. Thanks. Uh, do you own your own opinions? I have my own opinions, and anything I say here does not reflect those of my employer. Yeah, so you haven't copied and pasted them from a... Certainly not. Okay. Ooh, I would like to use that same disclaimer, please. Thank you. (laughs) Disclaimer time is over, children. We've got to get to the news. First story comes from Coindesk.com, and this was an analysis of what the SEC um, Bitcoin ETF rejection means. Um, Sarah, do you want to just take us through kind of the background to this one? Yes, sure. So the US Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC, announced on Thursday that nine Bitcoin exchanges traded fund ETF disapproval orders are to be stayed until further review. So according to the rules of the practice, the commission may effectively affirm, reverse, modify, set aside or remand for further proceedings in whole or in part, which I think covers most most things, most options. And technically, that means the end of this batch of Bitcoin ETFs is not final. So actually, in effect, it only takes the vote of one commission member to restart a petition for review. So what does this mean? Does this mean it's not a big deal then, the rejection? There's, there's a number of things going on here, which is first and foremost, why was the ETF exciting in the first place? Link, um, I think the exchange-traded fund for some time had been seen as that mass retail moment for Bitcoin. And the fact that you you can go to Coinbase and you can get exposure to Bitcoin. Um, There are other ways to get exposure to Bitcoins, but a lot of it had been through the futures markets like CME, SIBO, now SIX and and others. But that's not really available to retail investors in the way that an ETF is. You can buy an ETF through your Vanguard, through your Fidelity, through your Hargreaves lands down in the UK or wherever else. So this was seen as the mainstreaming moment. The, The thing that all of nine of these had in common was that they were built on the Bitcoin futures products. So it, there are other routes potentially to building an ETF, not directly on the on the futures markets, but possibly on the spot or some some other way of doing it. So it's it's not the end of the road here. Um, but Ryan, how are you viewing this? Yeah, so this is an interesting, I mean, uh, the, the ETF debate or debacle, however you wanted to categorize it, has been one of the most covered things in Bitcoin. And, you know, I think to Simon, to your point, the reason this is so big is because you look at addressable capital that Bitcoin can infiltrate. In the United States, uh, you've got about $5 trillion that are in tax-deferred accounts and 401ks and IRAs. That's $5 trillion. Uh, with a T. So you know, the ability for that money uh, that's qualified tax money or, or deferred tax to get into Bitcoin is virtually impossible without some type of structure like that. Now, you know, the, the tricky thing here about this, because this, this is, in effect, our business, we operate the, uh, the exchange traded notes here in, in Europe. And obviously, the US is the biggest ETF market, which is why 
all sites are set on, on what's going on over there. What's actually happening in these structures, it's, it's not technically true that all of them are based off of the futures. You do have a few that were denied that are based off of uh, the physical. Um, so, and, and here's the really interesting thing about that. So all of these are being classified as commodity ETPs. And what the SEC has actually said from a commodity ETP standpoint is that in order for it to be approved in trading, when it's classified as commodity ETP, there needs to be, there's a requirement of a surveillance sharing arrangements between the cash markets of where Bitcoin or gold or any other commodity is trading and what's occurring on the local exchange like NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, et cetera, et cetera. And what's happening now is that the SEC is not necessarily anti-Bitcoin. They're basically saying that because these are commodity exchange traded products, there is no intermarket surveillance mechanism that exists between the cash markets of where crypto is trading and ultimately the, the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange or BATS, wherever one of these ETFs will get listed. Um, that is where we're at right now. So, um, you know, so what, what's what's interesting is that you see, uh, to your point, I think it takes it takes one commissioner to re-review this. It likely this was uh, Hester Pierce, who's the one that's been outspoken about wanting to see a a product trading. We don't know that for sure. But now we're in this interesting dialogue where isn't it, it isn't necessarily a Bitcoin discussion. This is a discussion around can we develop. Uh, an intermarket surveillance mechanism between the stock exchanges and the crypto exchanges. Once we have that done, it looks like this is a done deal. I mean, we, we don't know for sure. There's no... But- and this is kind of regular practice. And the interesting thing is for a lot of law enforcement, law enforcement is already working with a lot of the centralized crypto exchanges. But yeah. I, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is the fear was that there are lots of out of the US exchanges, crypto to crypto exchanges that could impact the price that where there is no surveillance agreement. So, you know, you've got some that are operating inside that, some that are operating outside of that. And there's a degree of uncertainty there, maybe. One more thing on that. Yeah. So th- that is exactly right. So the second issue here is that um, it's one thing if you can get some of the U.S. quote-unquote regulated exchanges that may have a bit license or uh, a New York you know, banking license. But if you look at the percentage of you know, spot business that they are actually conducting on a global basis, it's very, you know, it's a smaller number, number than what we're seeing happen out of out of uh, Southeast Asia and Korea and places like that. Um, so it's not just a issue of getting an intermarket communication going on. It's it's needs to happen on a global basis potentially, uh, which is global is always challenging. Aman, do you have any thoughts on this? I think really just to echo what's being said here. This move to making uh, Bitcoin and other crypto assets uh, retail friendly means that the way they're being traded and the, the way that they're being used needs to be done with a different degree of rigor. And that, I think, is what we're seeing here. So being rejected uh, in this way is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It, it just forces the right questions to be asked. Yeah, and so what gold took what ten years to get its first ETF. Yeah. I mean, this is it, it shouldn't surprise us that this stuff takes time. Um, the other thing that I'm hearing is that um, some of the ones that were based on futures contracts, there's not a lot of volume of those futures contracts. So there's a fear about you know is the market really ready um, for that on on the future side, whereas on the, on the spot that you you could say it, it more or less is. Um, but there's the that global point that you make is you know regular listeners will know I'm, I'm one of the founders of global digital finance. And I think that's the problem it was set up to tackle was it's one thing to solve things in our jurisdiction, but this 
nature of this asset class is global. You have to have coordination across jurisdictions, and that's going to be critical. Yeah, it is. And that is kudos to what GDF is doing. We're, we're big supporters of that. And I, I think the you know the, the, at the end of the day, you've got this really difficult situation where um, the Bitcoiner and all of us are arguing, well, wait a second here. You know, Here you are arguing that there needs to be this communication but, you know, in commodity um, products between the spot exchange and the NASDAQ or wherever else to avoid market manipulation. But on, this, on the other hand, I mean, look at the oil markets and some of the other commodity markets that are quite possibly the most manipulated markets on the face of the earth. I mean, you literally have government bodies and, and multi-government bodies that dictate the relative supply of things and let you guys as investors know after the fact uh, and decide the relative supply and demand versus that doesn't e- exist in Bitcoin. So I think this is really a, um, w- we need to be patient here. Uh, everyone's kind of looking at this Bitcoin ETF as this holy grail moment for Bitcoin. Kind of. Uh, I, I don't view it as that. I think this is all a part of the story. You know, you're know, you going to see the SEC's come out and, and made pretty clear statements that they want to see some mechanism of intermarket surveillance between the cash markets and where the shares will be trading ultimately. And you're seeing uh, groups like the Winklevoss and, uh, you know, lean on uh, larger uh, groups to be able to get that done and you know, get exchanges talking, develop that surveillance mechanism. And ultimately, this will be a, a big role for groups like GDF, I think, because now with global digital, you know, when you have something like that in the US, uh, Tokyo is right behind the US as the second largest ETF market. In the Europe, we're certainly focused here on growing ETF. I think you'll have uh, you'll need some other bodies that helps coordinates that surveillance so that the market side and, and the institutional side of Bitcoin can grow up. I don't think you know the, the ETF story is obviously well publicized. We're going to be just fine without it ever happening. So that's the key point, isn't it? I think what's been really interesting to me uh, during the bear market of the last sort of six to eight months has been the shift in focus away from price into um, people doing interesting things. I mean, among you, you know, technologists at heart, some of the some of the things that you guys and others have been doing the last six to eight months. I mean, I I've noticed the uh, the Bitcoin Dev channel. Um, sort of mailing list has been full of new ideas lately in a way that it wasn't as clear to see it was during the bull run. And so some of the noise has kind of gone away a little bit. Yeah, it, it's like anything, right? When Whenever there's a gold rush, in this case, a Bitcoin rush, it does tend to drown out some of the innovation that happens. And uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of activity uh, from our enterprise clients doing a lot with both crypto, but also the application of crypto to kind of more enterprise use cases. And there's a, a huge interest in, you know, how do we do these things? And we'll see later, I guess, with the Maersk piece as well, outside of the world of playing cryptocurrencies. Key points uh, from one and all. All right, next story um, comes from the New York Times. Uh, After the Bitcoin boom, hard lessons for cryptocurrency investors. So this was an interesting one to me. Um, They kind of, they went down a couple of levels and they they spoke to um, several folks from different parts of the world on this one. Yeah, so it's a real human interest story. Uh, So there's a couple of people's stories that are covered, one of which, one of whom is Pete Roberts of Nottingham, England, which is uh, very well known for Robin Hood for our international listeners. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was one of the very many risk takers who threw their savings into cryptocurrencies when the prices were going through the roof last winter. And now eight months later, the $23,000 he invested um, in several digital tokens is worth about $4,000. Um, and he is 
clear-headed about what happened. Equally, another another person is a 45-year-old teacher and mother of one who lives on the outskirts of Seoul in Korea. And she put about 100 million won or $90,000 into cryptocurrencies last fall. So she drew on savings and insurance policy and, and also a, a $25,000 loan as well. So her investments are now down 90%. Yeah. Um, so these, these, are, these are sad stories, you know. And it's- this quote really stood out to me. I thought that cryptocurrencies would be the one and only breakthrough for ordinary hardworking people like us. Uh, I thought my family and I could escape hardship and uh, live more comfortably, but it turned out to be the other way around. I mean, the classic investing advice surely applies here, Sarah. Yeah, for sure. And like with anything, you should always do your own research and be sure that any money that you invest is really money that you're willing to lose, especially with something that's had historically such high volatility throughout. Uh, so to me, this is an interesting one because this is felt inevitable consequence of, of, of a massive bull run kind of without protections in an early market. But I think there's two sides to this story. There's obvious heartbreak. There's obvious human consequences that, that I don't think anybody welcomes. But this, um, I thought that cryptocurrencies would be the one and only breakthrough for ordinary hardworking people like us, speaks to a lack of inclusion in financial services and economic growth that I think really uh, often gets lost in this story. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the one thing that um, crypto tokens are being sort of touted for is democratizing investing. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a real shame that, that that didn't work out for these people. But I agree that with you, Simon. There's two sides to every story, but this is definitely you know we're suffering right now in a bear, in a bear market, kind of as a hangover from 2017. And there are you know this is kind of a natural thing that that these stories are going to get run and they're going to get run. Uh, pro- probably this won't be the last one that we see, um, and it definitely hurts a little bit. You know, we are as a Bitcoiner and as someone that's in this industry every day speaking about these various you know principles that we're talking about. It doesn't it, it hurts. It doesn't help. Um, when when that happens, and it's surely very unfortunate for that individual, you know. But th- this th- let's put this in, into context. I mean, it, it is doing those core principles aren't going away. I mean, we still have. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's purpose, as it stands, is to democratize finance and to break up uh, the existing system that's in place. Uh, and that mission is as strong as ever. You know, and if you look across the organizations that are bringing solutions to the market now, like the New York Stock Exchange, ICE. Uh, and others, they are buying into that. Um, you know, of course, along the way, you're going to see peaks and troughs in any market. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, you're going to have people that get in at the top and sell at the bottom. And that's just a really sad part about capital markets and, and uh, markets in general. Is so, there a role for education here, though, I mean, in good practice? Because I, I, I think what's interesting to me about the crypto world is it's more of a community than it is uh, just businesses and consumers. It's kind of flipped that model. And, you know, a lot of that community was price, pump, dump, and it had this sort of macho culture to it. And this could be an opportunity to change that um, tune. It is. And, you know, to this point of democratization, what I've seen with cryptocurrencies is more and more people across different socioeconomic classes, certainly in Europe, um, are using cryptocurrencies for different things. Mm-hmm. So um, friends of mine who have relatives in South America are using uh, Bitcoin as a way to remit money across borders. And we saw with the uh, Venezuelan uh, devaluation how important having access to these digital means of transfer is very important and enables a lot. But I think on the other side of it is how do you now get uh, investment advice out 
in these different ways. You know, a very simple glib way of saying it is FOMO is not an investment strategy. <laughs> well, I think creating FOMO in your marketing is definitely not a, a good marketing strategy either. I think the long-term responsibility that you see, I think a lot of the wallet providers and a lot of the good behavior coming out of some of the major exchanges, I think we should encourage and welcome that. I think that's that's kind of a really good development. But this is, let me make one more point on this. People like Hester at the SEC and others would argue that this is actually, we have a system built for this. So if you look at, you know, going back to the ETF conversation, you know, what, what happens as you, as you approve an issued product on the market, like an ETF for ETP, is that ultimately when that water falls down to the access point, which are the broker dealers, it becomes the broker dealer's responsibility to decide the sophistication level of each one of these. And right now, this is a complete unregulated market. It's a free fall. And, and I'm sure he would argue that. I'm sorry to cut across you, but I would argue that is disrupting and or changing that distribution model compelling in some way. Uh, the classic is that Dr. Chris Sear from Leeds University. If I can save you uh, 1% of the fees you're paying, if you say um, a 401k has 4% fees fully loaded when you cover the spreads, uh, if I could save you 1%, so knock that down to 3%, then that would double the return of your pension portfolio over the life of the term, or you could retire 13 years early. That's an amazing statistic. And that is a lot of that cost comes from the amount of intermediaries. So we could double the wealth of our economy over a lifetime of a career. That's a huge goal to go target. These middlemen are, whilst they're doing some useful roles in terms of educating people, we should also look at alternatives too and not not turn those off. Well, especially given the retirement crunch that's happening in pension crunch. And we're seeing a huge thing happening on the uh, buy side uh, asset management space as well, that there's a lot of change happening on approaching retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, investors, and how is that happening? And you know things like development of ETF, uh, providing access to cryptocurrencies. These are great ways of democratizing and making products easy for retail people to understand. Just to echo the earlier point uh, that we made in the, in the previous section, by getting these products ready for ETFs and mainstream consumption, you're taking some of these uh, volatility points out, and you, you can you become are, a lot more. But I, but I think you're reinforcing the old financial services structure that added cost. My point is, neither one of those is the only right answer. Both of them should be good answers and and we should have the option. Well, what's fundamentally interesting is Bitcoin was not made to be an investment product. It was made to be a payment product. Indeed. And you look at the API for that. I think there's a huge opportunity for a crypto investment thing to come out. Um, because right now we don't have a way of huh. there, there's no invest operation on any crypto asset. That's really right? interesting that there's they've not transfer. been designed to do that. They, right. They're intrinsically being used for something they were not designed to be used for. Absolutely. I mean, is there a buy future? Right? Is there a buy future? Is there an invest? There's there are none of these operations. That's interesting. So um, just as a bit of an aside, um, so ING did a survey, um, I think, in June of 2018, and uh, it hadn't crossed my desk until recently. Um, and I've seen a few people cite it. It's the ING International Survey, Mobile Banking Dash Cryptocurrency. And the stats in here make for pretty good reading. So they surveyed uh, about a 1,000 people um, in each country um, across Europe. So they had Austria, Belgium, Czech Republic, France, 
France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Poland, Romania, Spain, Turkey, United Kingdom, USA, and Australia. Um, and across those regions, they found an average uh, in the European consumers. Have you ever heard of cryptocurrency? Uh, 66% said yes. Um, and then again, uh, the, yeah, they kind of break that down to who owns some cryptocurrency, yes or no. The average European consumer, 9% owned cryptocurrency, which is highest in Turkey at 18%, which I imagine given the recent Lira crisis may even be higher. Uh, in the United Kingdom, it was as low as 6%, and in Luxembourg, it was 4%. Um, but, it, but it does beg the question, you know, kind of, uh, where does that go from here? All right, next story, just to keep us on time, uh, it comes from Forbes.com. Uh, IBM and Maersk um, have a blockchain platform, and they've added 92 clients as a part of a global launch, global launch even, not a launch. I don't know what a launch is. 92 clients, not insignificant, Sarah. And we've, we've been talking about trade finance for a while. We have, yes. And we actually covered uh, this story when it was first announced, I think, when we did our Money 2020 episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad to see that they have added the clients, actually. Now. Yeah, because that was an announcement of a JV with yes. no clients. And we've seen that a million it times was. on this DLT side. But this exactly. has got clients. This has. And that was part of what we hoped, that they would actually add the clients and it would be a co-owned structure as well for the participants. But So anyway, a previously unnamed collaborative effort between the world's largest shipping company, Maersk, and IBM. It's now grown to 92 participants and has been dubbed Trade Lens. Uh, so it's a blockchain platform. It's been quietly orchestrating global trade with uh, less reliance on middlemen for a year. Uh, so it's been resulting in 154 million shipping events in ports around the world and is now growing at a rate of 1 million per day. So yeah, that's a, that's a, a big number per day. Collectively, the shipping companies account for more than 20% of the global supply chain market share. Wow. I think this is kind of a really key point that it's 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 not in just raw beta pilot anymore. This is real. Like Gartner just put DLT and blockchain and the trough of disillusionment. Peak like, of the trough of disillusionment, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the local minimum. Yeah, I like uh, yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. So it's, it's like <laughs> the sort of the executive view of that blockchain stuff is, oh, it's never going to deliver anyway. It's 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 not what it is. And and then you get this story. I mean, it's it's almost classic timing here from from uh, the old Gartner hype cycle, man. It is. And, you know, we're, we're seeing an awful lot happening in terms of production systems of blockchain generally. What I find interesting about this is how quickly they went from a JV being announced to the number of participants. Mm-hmm. When I last looked at this, um, it seemed to be they were very much focused on easing that supply chain document exchange, mm-hmm. which is, if anyone has ever looked at the the manifests and the letters of credit that have to be done, they're, they're depressing documents from many levels, primarily aesthetic uh, but also as efficiencies, they're terrible. Well, so I, I saw an estimate back when I worked at Barclays that um, the annual cost of just shipping those paper documents around the world is around 40 to 50 billion US dollars. And so, some of them are printed on that fax paper as well. Uh, yeah. So if you don't get there in time, they fade, which yeah. is awesome, mm-hmm. right? Wow. And, and what's interesting, I think, with this is that, you know, they're working on this on a container level. Some colleagues of mine, they've been working with uh, another part of Maersk, the digital arm, on the ship level Mm -hmm. and kind of building insurance uh, as a point of uh, of use. So where you are, you get charged a bit more. Where you're not, you get charged a bit less. And it's it's kind of integrating the the ship level aspects uh, to it as well. So you're, you're seeing a lot of innovation happening at kind of both ends of the movement of goods. Talk to me about business case. If I'm sitting in the strategy team of a big supermarket, what does this mean for me? I think it means a couple of things, right? One is taking out cost. And it's also taking out uh, unpredictability. Why? Exchanging manual documents is a real uh, pain. 
So how does this solve that? So how this solves it is it makes it easier because you're using computers to match manifests, basically. And, and why can I use a centralized service to do that in the past? Uh, if any of us have ever used a centralized service, we know how painful that is because getting access to centralized services are difficult when you're in uh, ports. I don't know if anyone has ever been in a port, but yeah. internet connectivity is pretty poor. So you need something that has this uh, resilience and robustness on low-fi low devices that can operate in multiple jurisdictions where the, the governments may change, the rules may change, but the data stays consistent. Absolutely. And if you want to know what that actually feels like, if there are any skeptics out there, turn your mobile phone to use the GSM network and log into Twitter. <laughs> oh. and, that, and that'll give you an experience of what it's like. To me, you know, this is ex- it's definitely an exciting, ex- this is exciting news and exciting headline, but I, you know, I want to see um, with, with with a couple of these projects, I want to see it actively in the wild uh, encounter an attack. Um, and I want to see a few of these big use cases go through the, you know, the nature of, of what happens when you have a piece of technology in the wild. You know, I think this is a big win for our industry. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think you know now it'd be interesting to see what happens when some of these systems get attacked uh, and how resilient they are uh, from an immutability standpoint because that's effectively what we're what they're what we're relying on here. Um, and I, I think another point that's happening as well: the way supply chains are operating are changing a lot uh, as well. They're, they're becoming uh, a lot more integrated, and the use of third-party uh, carriers uh, is becoming not as prominent in how the contracts are being written. So you're kind of getting quote unquote single owner or larger chunks of the supply chain, which again is being built in to get rid of some of the um, friction points that are in there. And so there's some classic financing pieces here as well. Like if you start thinking about what does that mean from a finance standpoint, it's not just the cost takeout. If I have certainty over uh, where that commodity is, that has data, that data has value for financial markets, but also it has value for my balance sheet. It means I can potentially factor an invoice more effectively. Uh, Potentially there's a whole bunch of uh, risk data that becomes available to not just the financial markets, but to corporates. Um, You know, for corporates, it's two things, uh, you know, uh, cash flow and risk. Those are the, the two big, big ones. Help me manage risk. Help me manage my cash flow. And this does both. Yeah. And this, this goes back to the earlier point that um, I'd made around this off-chain data. By having all this stuff happening in a real accessible consortium shared way, you can actually look at the data and feed it into your modeling, but also feed it into your logistics and feed it into your bigger systems to help you make better decisions. I think that's an interesting point. This stuff doesn't look like Bitcoin. It looks quite different technically. Yeah. But what, what's really interesting about it is, whereas Bitcoin has elegance and has a lot of elegance on a protocol level, this is not as elegant because it, it's solving problems with baseball bats mm-hmm. and uh, iron rods. But then again, you know, you had fax paper beforehand. So it's, it's a different type of elegance. And I, th- I think these abstractions will be built on top of it. And we're, we're going to see that iterate there. One of the key things that I remember working with um, an 11FS client a couple of years ago, as part of their strategy, was realizing that uh, blockchain and DLT were not an end in of themselves. They were a means to an end, and they were a part of a tech stack. I mean, if you were to go look inside of most companies that operate on top of either Bitcoin or DLT, a lot of their stack looks like regular old DevOps, and, and, and it has to be. And I think too often people have seen uh, blockchains as a competitor to 
to DevOps stacks when actually it's a complement to a DevOps stack. Absolutely, because you, you've got to live in a world with the data you have and the systems you have. That's how you feed into it. What will be interesting, I think, if we look back, you know, if Futurama looks back at this three years later, you know, you can compare this to when BPO was introduced and that didn't get the industry acceptance it needed, but it was entirely digital. You used electronic documents for it. But it just didn't get the traction because you require too much signing up and too much centralization and agreement. Mm. So this can happen if you get just enough of the supply chain using just enough of the service and it will exist in and of itself without that centralized actor and everybody signing up. Yeah. And the big driver here are ports as well. Mm. So uh, it's not a coincidence we're seeing this happening after the port of Dubai. It said, you know what? Please make us blockchain friendly. Yeah, I mean, this the, the, to the point that you made earlier. What, one of the things that we, looking at from a markets perspective instead of a technologist, which 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 you are, is you know, the amount of data that we're now going to have uh, in terms of looking at velocity of goods. Looking at, you know, I have an oil trader that was looking outside of the Singaporean port uh, a few years ago to confirm how many oil tankers were parked outside. You know, and it's it's the the access of data to financial markets that we're going to have by the uh, adoption and increase of, of this technology is going to be massive. You know, f- financial markets will, will benefit greatly from it. Providing that access to that data in an interoperable way, because a lot of that yeah. data is available. So ships, for example, have to report where they are, how long they spend in certain zones and territories. But that exists on a proprietary centralized database somewhere. Completely proprietary. It varies by systems. I'm showing too much geekiness here, but yeah. I think the headlines of some, like, so now we're seeing uh, the evolutionary industry go from proof of concepts partnerships now to this one clients i want to see the next series of headlines talk about uh sustainability of attacks and you know the the mechanism yeah robustness of the like we've seen in some of the open blockchains uh like bitcoin and and others and i think that will be the next series of headlines that's going to get me really excited um, because that's that's when we know we're really winning. I think resilience was one of the things the Bank of England pointed out about DLT as being one of the most exciting features to them, more so than just about anything else. So it'd be interesting to see if it lives up to that. All right, next story. Um, this one uh, comes from Finextra. Uh, so a company called Wirex becomes the third crypto company to receive an FCA e-money license. Who are, who are Wirex, sir? So Wirex, are, uh, they're a popular global crypto to fiat payment platform. Uh, and they've just become, as you say, the third cryptocurrency enabled company in the world to be granted a UK FCA e-money license. Uh, so that's that's quite exciting. So co-founder Dmitry Lazarichev believes that the license is a testament to the fact that Wirex is committed to pursuing and achieving the highest levels of diligence and integrity in its business operations. So it's quite interesting. The FCA's approach to cryptocurrencies has been relatively cautious for reasons which have are probably fairly obvious to most listeners of the show, but their progressive stance towards uh, blockchain technologies has been encouraging. This is an interesting one to me. So um, I, I came across Wirex a number of years ago. Um, a couple of the founders are ex-Cybersource. Um, a man, you'll have heard of Cybersource. Um, they were one of the first payment service providers. So after PayPal, um, there weren't many companies that gave you the ability to acquire payments online as a bit of software, like Stripe.com does now. Cybersource were one of the very, very first, later to be acquired by Visa. So that team has gone and built this uh, kind of wallet service. So there's a really highly experienced team. Um, and they were sort of bumbling around. They'd uh, they'd built a wallet. They were looking for partnerships. It hadn't really gone anywhere. And then I think they did an ICO. They got some funding and they seem to be getting some, some momentum. I'm not close to them. I haven't spoken to them in a while. We'll reach out to them and try and get them on the show. But I know they, they support payments across a number of blockchain platforms, including Ripple and XRP. Um, so it's interesting to me they've got an e- money license as as the uh, third organization to do it. I think the first one was 
Circle, and the second one was Coinbase. Um, so it, you know that puts them in rarefied air in terms of uh, of what they need to do. And it also essentially means you know they're the same as a as a Monzo or a Revolut from a from, well Monzo and, or a bank, but certainly a Revolut or a TransferWise from a from a regulatory standpoint. So it gives them a lot more uh, kind of optionality. I think what's interesting is that there's this space around the wallets that is going to have a lot of innovation around it. Um, and that's in the widest sense of the word wallet. You know, we, we have very few uh, uh, B2B wallets, for example. And I think having something like this is going to open a lot of uh, different use cases and channels. It's interesting. I hadn't really heard much of these guys before this, and, and they just popped up on everyone's radar, at least in the crypto world. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I mean, we've been fighting the battle, or, and, or not fighting the battle, but, but coaching with the regulators here in the UK. You've been leading the charge um, at GDF, and it's exciting. I mean, to have the third one here now is... Uh, it goes a long way. So I, need, I want to read the fine print, though, because you know, d- does the license? I don't know if it covers anything that they're actually doing or touching in crypto. Need to look into that. Uh, but you know, th- this is still you know, when, when you have firms like this that are starting to get cover from the FCA. Um, what that does is it adds more legitimacy to businesses that are own, you know, operating in our space. What this essentially means is they can get a bank account. Yeah, uh, this is the, that, that's the key, and they can get access to local clearing through that bank account. There so you go. Yeah, that's that's the big thing it gives them. Yeah, it's uh, really an on-off ramp into the crypto world. I think, yeah. as you say, it doesn't the FCA isn't covering anything they're doing with crypto, but they right. are covering the fiat side of things. And, the, and so the big thing for the FCA is the regulated perimeter. So as soon as you start acting there, you beca- you come within the regulatory perimeter, and one of the things that the FCA looks for and is is kind of uh, that understanding of the regulatory perimeter, that understanding of the risk, the track record of the management team. They're looking for all kinds of uh, understandings of the unhappy paths, right? So it's really great to say, this is how my service works. But if you can come up with a hundred things that happen when it goes wrong and how you'll manage those things that go wrong, that's what really gets the engagement there. And uh, you know, this is this is now becoming a, a reasonably well-trodden path. If you're able to limit uh, to a certain segment, to a certain amount, I think it, it can be done. But getting these licenses has never been easy, um, and, and probably nor should it be. But it, it'll be interesting to see where Wirex goes from here, because I don't know if I'm still sold on you know, just wallets as being a better way of doing international payments. I think they might have to offer something more. I mean, um, or if they do, they've got to nail the product side. I mean, Revolut did well, but they got to you know two and a half million customers, TransferWise at three million customers. There are some well-funded incumbents that offer essentially, arguably, a better service than crypto offers today. Uh, that they're essentially going head to head with. Can they? Can they really compete and stand out in that space? I mean, the, the value in any of these kind of offerings is, you know, what's the API and what are the additive services you allow to be built on top of that? It's it's not so much the offering in and of itself. Yeah, but also, you know, is Wirex creating a captive wallet in which somebody else needs to be a Wirex customer? You know, and this is where what Circle came to market with, and they, you know, very well-funded, uh, extremely experienced team. And actually, the, the majority of that business is now not the retail side, it's it's on the OTC side. Uh, and so the, it, payments is a hard nut to crack. Venmo, who've done well, Square Cash have done well, but you have to be, you know, you're in rarefied air when you're competing in payments. Absolutely. And when when you go after closed ecosystems, you're basically doing a plain B2B play. Yeah. And if you want to have a lot of retail and you want to have mass adoption, it needs to be open. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to watch this space as well. So I think they're expanding into Asian markets, including Singapore and Japan, as well as North America. So it enables them to create additional um, e-money accounts in uh, lots of different currencies as well. So remittance and, and international payments might seem an obvious use case there. It would, it, but you've got a two-sided market problem, right? You need you need people to receive the money as well as to send the money, For and sure, you need yeah. you need presence in both. It, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, given their experience of creating a payment service provider, can you go solve problems in countries like? Uh, Vietnam and uh, other countries, you know, and possibly to a lesser extent Thailand and a few others, where access to local clearing and accessing to the telcos is really, really difficult. And some sort of service around that could be super helpful. But there, there is a first world problem that solves, though. You can actually have a really good wallet on your iOS. <laughs> That's Sorry. Fair point. Although I would check out, um, this is Rick Burton, if you're listening, plug for you, but um, Balance, uh, check those guys out. Um, I, th- I think they're pretty interesting. Uh, all right. Um, other wallets are available. We'll see, though. Well, the route of groups like this that are actively seeking out the e-money license and others in the, over the next three years be a competitive advantage to those wallet providers or others that are in the same pseudo space, you know, blockchain.com or others that aren't seeking these out. Or, you know, I, I want to see which one of these ends up being a competitive advantage over do, the next do you years. want to be a custodial wallet that's regulated or right. do you want to be non-custodial and which is better i mean we don't know yet i mean if it, let's let's ask these three uh in about a uh, two years time well and also let's think about uh who's getting customers and what's the customer acquisition looking like right. and is that customer acquisition driven by a bull run of right. price or is it driven by genuine utility well blockchain.com's got what 28 million customers right now um you can argue whether it's the best wallet or not i don't you know don't have a, a opinion but you know how many customers do, do some of the other e-money licenses have? You know, so it's this is the question. We'll see. We will indeed. All right. Next story comes from Finextra.com. Uh, Singapore are going to press ahead with blockchain project Ubin, and Ubin's been around for a little bit of time. Uh, Sarah, what's going on here? Yeah. So Singapore's central bank, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, uh, is working with the Singapore Exchange and three technology partners, Anquan. Deloitte and NASDAQ to uh, develop delivery versus payment DVP capabilities for settlement of tokenized assets across different blockchain platforms. Why do they want DVP um, compared to today's system? Well, I think the DVP, I mean, the, you have two legs to that. There's the, the transfer of ownership of assets and the cash uh, settle payments. And one of the interesting cases with blockchain, say, is to be able to provide an actual atomic swap of this ownership of asset and ownership of the actual Rather funds. than the delay between the two, which the means delay. you have to park collateral, which is expensive. Exactly. And there's there's many different sort of places for friction and single points of failure and single points of trust in today's market as well. So the interesting thing is this was in, been around for a little while. Um, it's, it's the latest phase. Um, they, they had a supplier-led initiative, I think, um, and where they were benchmarking several kind of different uh, platforms against each other. Seems like they went with none of the three. Um, do we know yeah. what the platform is underneath this? I don't at the moment, but it's interesting that you say, because I think the last um, the release they had at the end of last year, they had a very, well, quite detailed um, key observations and findings section, which compared and contrasts Corda, Hyperledger Fabric, Quorum, and uh, Microsoft Azure. Uh, so that was a very interesting read for those of us in the space to hear someone sort of supposedly independent comparing and contrasting them. Um, I don't know yet which platform it is they've chosen to go with. And so the technology partners will use the open source software developed and made publicly available by the Monetary Authority of Singapore in November last year to examine the potential of automating DVP settlement processes. So it's like we've gone to the next phase and basically of the three things we did last year, um, now we're going to look at a use case. That's what I read is really going on here. 
Well, there are a couple of other things that have been happening. One is around the same time, the Bank of Japan and our own Bank of England were looking at uh, using blockchain and ran a few experiments on that. So this is a very active area. And Well, the next story actually that's linked to this is the Thailand Central Bank yeah. developing a digital currency based on R3's technology as well. And this is a concept for central bank digital currency. So this isn't like uh, private uh, companies providing the software. This is all, all the tokens and, and managing it across um, privately issued balance sheets. This is this is the central bank issued digital currency, which yeah. I think is super interesting. And that's backed by it. But you know, going back to the MAS project, um, the source code hasn't been updated really since December of last year. So um, whatever changes have happened haven't been pushed out. So it hasn't been an overly active public project, uh, certainly at the 10 minutes before this started anyway. Mm-hmm. I was trolling through the source code. But the other thing is if you look at the source code or the source codes, as they say so beautifully in their press release, across the different chains, they're operating in very much uh, an analog to the existing non-digital systems. Mm-hmm. You know, So here's my asset. Hold on to my asset transfer. You said they're replicating the way it works today and they're using new tech to do it. This kind of reminds me of a metaphor. Listeners will have heard me trope out once or twice before, but it bears repeating, which is when we discovered um, the ability to build with iron, when we were building the first bridges, we used rivets that you would have worked for a wooden bridge because we didn't know how to build with iron yet. And there's a little bit of that going on. This is also, I mean, you know, if you look at an element of this, which is, you know, cross-chain settlements, this is a very difficult thing here and you know that the whether whether we're looking at atomic swaps or other iterations of that you know this again i'll go back to what i said earlier it, it, it will be a test of let's say we develop a solution singapore does and thailand do it will be interesting to see how this performs in the wild and whether you're going to allow that to be uh, grow up in a bubble in a confined space or whether you're going to allow that to be you know consistently attacked and hacked and things and, and, and things like that so I, i'm interested to see how that how that plays out because you know these atomic swaps and these things are not we're not production ready in some of the open blockchains yet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we get there first in some of the privates. I, I don't know. Yeah. What I find interesting is kind of between what the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, and, and all these other projects have done is that they haven't built this engine, you know, where you have this paradigm of atomic swap yep. or, you know, what are the low level instructions we need in these digital machines to do what we needed to do? Because if I want to clear uh, a high value uh, security settlement, I can't be doing it the way I'm doing it right now electronically. Um, what value have we added? All right. Um, just to remind everybody, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by the lovely, lovely folks at R3. Um, Todd McDonald's was on the show a couple of weeks ago in his shiny red T-shirt. And uh, they said that the R3 quarter platform delivers on the promise of blockchain for business. And we've heard a bit of um, stories today about some things delivering on promise, some things maybe are still early, but uh, it sounds like it's getting there. If you're in London this September, you should plan to visit over 400 attendees at their conference QuarterCon on the 12th and 13th of September. So they're doing a dev day and a biz day. Um, so dev day is the 12th of September and uh, the biz day is on the September the 13th. The speaker lineup's got um, European Central Bank, HPE, HSBC, Finastra, Guild One, uh, Microsoft apparently, Nataxis, Trade, uh, Trade IX, um, which are, Trade IX are another one of those um, consortia doing uh, uh, trade finance stuff. Trade finance seems really hot right now. And of course, um, Blockchain Insider will be there, so come say hi to us. Uh, you can visit r3.com forward slash Cordicon to register if you want to see Todd in a red t-shirt, um, if you want to see Colin G. Platt away from his field, um, just any of that good stuff. Um, make sure you get yourself down there. All right, last story this week uh, comes from uh, Coindesk.com. A major Russian airline tests blockchain in a bid to track 
fuel payments. Sarah, run us through this one. Interesting, yeah. So it's a use case sort of uh, not right within the financial services ecosystem. So S7, one of the largest airline operators in Russia, has tested a blockchain-based application that tracks data and paperwork connected to the process for refueling planes. The airline said in a release on Monday that it trialed the application with its fuel supplier, Gazpromnefto, and Alpha Bank, the Russia's largest private bank, on a domestic flight based out of uh, Tomachevo International Airport. I do apologise for our Russian listeners for um, butchering your language. Yeah, butcher the language away. This one seems like another trial. Like headlines about trials probably need to go away a little bit, right? Yes, I think we're past the POC phase. I think we've been saying that for quite a while, actually. Not that you know people shouldn't be trialing with new technology and things but I don't think it's headlines anymore what should they be doing instead what instead of trialing yeah well instead of just putting out a press release saying hey we trialed the thing with one transaction well I think you know trial the thing with more than one transaction (laughs) create a new business model create a partnership a consortium look at actually matching the use case to what the technology is which is decentralized peer-to-peer and it's it's used to transact value across you know international regions without borders and things and obviously uh adhere to the regulations in whatever jurisdiction in which you operate. The, but. the thing missing for me here is product management. It is a really clear goal as to what the business case is and what the minimum lovable product's going to be in, in a delivery mentality. I might be overly cynical here, but um, I think there's been a historic problem in Russia between people taking money for fuel being filled mm-hmm. and money and fuel actually being filled. And this might, this might... Uh, perhaps be trying to address a euphemistic inefficiency in the market. <laughs> we, we need that traceability. Wonder, are, are they going to accept the Venezuelan cryptocurrency, though? The they oil need back the petro. petro, yeah. yeah that's right. And well, let's take the Petro. All right, um, I'm going to move us to some stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, first one comes from uh, Coindesk eToro uh, to pay for a major UK soccer sponsorship deal. So that one's just for Colin G. Platt because he doesn't know anything about soccer. And turns out eToro are doing a thing. Um, all right, so Coindesk.com, uh, Samsung looks to streamline banking with a blockchain tool. That's one heck of a headline. Um, do dig into that one. Coindesk.com, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak joins crypto startup Equi. Um, and Coindesk, I seem, seems to think, uh, were pretty cynical about that one. Um, so they, they didn't think it was maybe in his best interest. Uh, time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Twitter of the week comes from Anna Herrera of Reuters, and uh, Anna's um, been doing a lot of work in the space for quite some time. Uh, the tweet says, Ripple's CTO in an upcoming blog about how the XRP ledger is inherently decentralized, uh, even more so than Bitcoin and Ethereum. Her question was, thoughts, question mark. Um, and there's a couple of images there that they use from that. Any thoughts on this one? I think a lot of people had a lot of thoughts, didn't they, on Twitter? I think there were very many replies. Depends what you mean by decentralization there's decentralization of um, validating transactions and there's also decentralization of issuance which i seem to be missed out from the blog entirely yeah it, it's it's kind of one of those things do you remember the old game of top trumps does this oh, translate to the US? No, XRP top trumps. No. You know this is. So I the, very much know what it means. So this is the game where, like, you, maybe you have a sports team or you have cars, and then they've got like eight key stats, and then basically the idea is that every car or every sports star has one statistic that they win on. So the idea of the game is you have to figure out what statistic. So like, let's say um, this one has a big engine, or this one has the best aerodynamic performance, or whatever it is, you have to play the thing that you're best at to make your point that you should win. 
in. Um, this feels a bit like that is happening. Um, and I think given the sufficiently decentralized Howie coins direction of travel, um, there seems to be a, a push there. I'm, I'm glad someone has come up with some sort of yardstick to measure uh, decentralization. I think it's Shout out to Tim Swanson on sufficiently decentralized Howie coins. Before we go, our own Colin G. Platt left um, his field and caught up with Michael Sonnenschein from Grayscale. I'm here with Michael Sonnenschein, the Managing Director at Grayscale Capital. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about what you do, a bit about Grayscale, the company? Sure. So Grayscale Investments is a New York-based digital currency asset manager. Uh, the largest and and most established digital currency asset manager globally. Um, We now manage about $1.5 billion um, across a family of eight different investment products. And so today we have single currency products. Um, We have a product for Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, XRP, and Zcash. And then the eighth product that we have is a diversified offering, which is called Digital Large Cap Fund. And it holds the tokens that constitute the upper 70% of the digital currency market. And so for both high net worth and institutional investors, because our products are available to accredited investors, we are seeking to bridge the gap between digital currencies and the investment community. There are a lot of frictions that exist with respect to purchasing digital currency, holding, safekeeping digital currency. And so we alleviate all of that by investors being able to express a view on digital currency through the purchase of a security. I want to talk about that because that's one of our really big interesting themes that we've been talking about for the last six to 12 months. Why would an institutional investor go through you rather than just buying the coins? Sure. So most institutional investors by mandate are not allowed to self-custody. So institutional investors historically invest in stocks, bonds, commodities, etc. And they have what's referred to as prime brokers, right? So these are banks that are responsible for the settlement and clearing of those assets. Now, all of those banks, at least at the moment, are not handling digital currency. And so if your prime broker is Goldman Sachs, you can't buy digital currency and have it clear through Goldman Sachs today. That's number one. Um, Number two, outside of not having a bank who can clear the asset, you have most institutions by mandate also can't self-custody assets. So even if they do open an account with a digital currency exchange, buy the assets, they can't then be in control of their own assets. And quite frankly, we don't feel that they should. Investors, be them portfolio managers, um, you know, hedge fund managers, whatever it may be, they should really focus on investing. Where and when should they put capital to work and where and when should they take risk off the table? And so we are giving those exact types of investors a solution that allows them to express a view on digital currency, but takes out all of the frictions for them. So if we kind of look at hypothetical hedge funds that come in, the options with you are to invest in unit trust, uh, which are based in the United States, or you have a, another setup for your diversified fund sure. in the Caymans. How, how would I, as a theoretical uh, hedge fund, go in and actually invest in these things? How does that work today? What's the process? Sure. So investors get in touch you know, directly with us. They're furnished an offering memorandum, um, which outlines all the risks, all the disclosures of investing in the products. They ultimately go through our KYC and AML procedures and eventually sign a subscription document. Today, uh, the seven single currency products are Delaware grantor trusts. Now, they maintain that Delaware grantor trust status because we mimicked the product structures 
off of the Spider Gold ETF, uh, symbol GLD in the U.S. And so this is a format that works really well when you want to create an investment structure and have that investment structure be solely and passively invested in an underlying asset. For our diversified product, we had to choose a different structure because the product rebalances every quarter. It did not fit squarely into the um, the taxation issues that we would probably experience inside of a grantor trust, and thus that product is a Cayman LLC. And so on any day, an investor can come to Grayscale and buy any of the eight products. There is a daily 4 p.m. net asset value, so much the same way you might buy a mutual fund or another financial instrument. There is daily transparent fair pricing for each of the assets such that an investor can gain exposure to any one of them on any given day of the week. One thing that we've been talking a lot about in the cryptocurrency community, and, and particularly over the last week or so um, after we were recording this, is about the classification of these underlying assets, whether they're securities or not securities. Is that something that affects your business? It does. So I think the, the most recent event that you're referring to was last week when someone from the SEC you know, made a proclamation that Ethereum is not a security. I was actually standing about 100 feet away from him at the time. I was at an event at Yahoo in, in San Francisco. Um, and so I think that's exactly the kind of regulatory clarity that the community and we as a whole are looking for. By and large, you know, the assets that we are providing investment structures around would be items that would, you know, in our view, not be deemed that way. That being said, we are still looking for increased regulatory clarity um, around various digital assets. But for the moment, we're staying away from things like like initial coin offerings and other, you know, unregistered offerings that do look, feel, act, and sound like a security. And is this something you're in discussions with the regulators on, on to ensure that your view that whichever type of an asset is or isn't, or is this something that's uh, purely internal? So I think from our interactions with regulators are mostly around education. And so we support a public policy group based in D.C. called Coin Center, which we think is the leading group in uh, the U.S. that's helping to educate regulators and, and our legislators. Um, and so we work proactively with them. We certainly are down in D.C. often meeting with various regulators. I think the unfortunate thing that I was just saying um, before this conversation was that the speed at which this industry is moving and the way that the industry is innovating is so much faster than our regulators can possibly keep up with. And so it's important that everyone in the community not just go full steam ahead with their projects, but you know has to do so within some kind of regulatory framework if they're going to want them to be successful. And, and greater clarity is always welcome, especially when we're on the bleeding edge. Can I shift a bit and talk about not the names of clients, um, but the types of clients that are coming in, the, the I understand the, the high net worth individuals, rich people, the institutions that are coming in, are these mostly hedge funds? If so, which types of hedge funds? Are these some other type of funds? Sure. So, well, it's important to note that even though all eight products are eligible for daily subscription at the net asset value by accredited investors, two of the eight products are already publicly quoted in the U.S. So you can be accredited or not accredited. You can be a retail investor and purchase them. And so the Bitcoin vehicle, Bitcoin Investment Trust, trades under the symbol GBTC. And the Ethereum Classic vehicle, um, Ethereum Classic Investment Trust, trades under the symbol ETCG. 
technology. And so we have both a mix of individual um, retail investors as well as accredited investors, high net worth individuals, hedge funds. The hedge funds and institutional investors that are putting money to work with us are everything from you know, global macro funds, deep value funds. It really runs the gamut. I don't think that there's one consistent theme as to who's investing or why they might be investing. It's often that they are either reallocating out of another part of their portfolio, whether that may be gold, whether it be the riskiest part of their portfolio. For some investors, they're looking at some of their existing investments across payments and credit card companies in those areas and trying to think about how digital currency may have an impact on that. And so over time, we're seeing more and more of these themes develop. But I think there's zero question that for most investors, they have come to view Bitcoin, at least, as digital gold and a digital store of value. And, and that's really interesting, kind of the juxtaposition of those things, of these things widely fit a lot of different themes. Bitcoin has migrated, I guess, to the, the digital gold. But there's that really interesting point you just pulled out, which is the theme of how what is the future of payment system and how do these fit in? Do they look at this more as the, the smaller companies or is this directly, I'm pulling out of a Visa or a MasterCard and putting into whatever it is? Sure. So I, I'm fortunate enough to often be invited to various fintech and financial services conferences um, held by global banks. And, you know, they often have hedge fund analysts request one-on-one -on -one meetings with us. And for three years now, they've been saying, Michael, what does this do to my... 10-year-long investment in MasterCard or Visa or American Express or Western Union? And the answer is it's too early to say. Um, you know, digital currency group Grayscale's parent company is fortunate to call companies like MasterCard and Western Union as investors in the DCG enterprise. And so these are companies that are looking at everything from payments to trying to create you know, new incentive structures for merchants. They're trying to deal with identity fraud, chargebacks, all other kinds of things. So it's difficult to say how soon or how much the proliferation of these technologies will, will um, impact those investments. Thank you very much for coming on. Where can people find out more about yourself and Grayscale? Sure. So Grayscale, um, you can visit us at www.grayscale.co. You can find us on Twitter at Grayscale Invest. My Twitter handle and um, is my last name at Sun and Shine. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Alrighty, thank you, Colin, and thank you to Michael. As a reminder, we're 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy. Well, we're just plain old working to shape the future of financial services and frankly get shit done. Uh, we're taking the show live on the 26th of September at the London Olympia for Blockchain Live. It's going to be live, all of the live. Alive and Kicking. Do you remember Alive and Kicking, the TV show? Anyway, um, head on over to blockchainlive.com and check out the latest event announcements. I'll be speaking. And get ready for this, because I'm going to spell it out. There's a uh, there's a code for 30% off your ticket price. That's, uh, that's an exclusive discount right there. Um, so it is uh, M11FS18. That's M for mother, 11 FS18, M11FS18, for 30% off your ticket price. Do it now, people, blockchainlive.com. Remember, please hit subscribe. It helps us so much. If you want to hear this goodness in your ear every week, you, you've just got to hit subscribe and uh, leave us a review. It helps us out massively. Before we disappear, Sarah, where can people find out more about you? You can find me on the Twitter at Seronimo, or you can find Clematics on Twitter at Clematics, or you can go to Clematics.com forward slash careers. I'm, I'm still thinking Seronimo is one of my favourite Twitter handles. Oh, thank you. What's the story behind so Seronimo? Um, it's, it rhymes with Geronimo. Uh, was that it? I was think it? someone already had Sarah, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a while ago. Uh, but luckily, it. I've got the same handle every, everywhere. Okay. Um, speaking of handles, go to GitHub.com forward slash Clematics. There you go. To US. Really? 
silent and smooth. That was brilliant. All right, Ryan, follow that. My Twitter handle is nowhere near as cool. It's just at Ryan Radloff. Uh, but you can find out more about CoinShares uh, at coinshares.co.uk. Brilliant. Uh, you got first name, last name. That's it. Yeah. That's the way it's it is. Yeah. Did you get first name, last name? I'm a little bit better. At A. Coley on Twitter. Oh, wow. And that's K-H-O-L-I. No, that's a different type. So, at A-K-O-H-L-I. Ah, damn it. My dyslexia got me. Uh, No, that's not dyslexia. (laughs) My stupidity got me. (laughs) I don't know you well enough to comment on that. So, um, and I I think a thing that might be interesting for people is uh, Azure has been making a lot of cool announcements around the uh, blockchain workbench. So, just type in uh, blockchain workbench in your... uh, Favorite browser. Favorite browser, which... And search engine, which may be Google, uh, it may be Bing if you work for Microsoft. And yeah, that was awesome. coming. <laughs> I love it. Big thanks to the amazing production team here at 11FS. Producer Petrick, welcome back. Thank you so much. Uh, Bianca, sorting out the uh, the media and the marketing side and making sure that everybody knows about what we're doing. And Michael Bailey, super, super sound editor um, and kicking ass as always. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.